let the hogs out. Welcome to Hog Planet, your destination where we weigh, tag, and grade the hogs of culture and politics, whatever that means. It's kind of up to the eye of the hog holder. Uh, I am Dan Spaventa, joined by Sam, uh, my co-host. We're still both in quarantine in our separate uh, cities. Uh, Sam, you are still in the Satan's asshole of America, Washington, where the evil, uh, you know, where, where the perverts roam the earth. I'm living in the post-apocalyptic world run by perverts. They're, they're forcing us to do naughty things in the street. It's, it's a sad situation here, folks. I don't know what to say. I, 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 can we we don't have to talk about it for long but this is this is the government that has suppressed our boy bernie sanders it's over yeah we're recording the evening after uh senator bernie sanders has suspended his campaign so that fewer people are going to the polls and dying of the vicious <laughs> highly virulent covid19 that's currently got the world on lockdown for the most part and we're all we're feeling it it's bad it feels it feels largely illegitimate what's going on right now the fact that they held primaries against you know cdc and who guidelines it's just i don't know what to say i feel like this is going to delusion a all future generations of people who the democrats are then going to wring their hands about why they're not voting for them so pretty bleak and you can already feel like mounting the sort of Biden lost because of Bernie, and we are just... They're ready uh, to do it already, yeah. Lather, rinse, repeat 2016, and it's, you know, it's a bleak future, and that's why I, you know, this is a movie that actually uses the word pandemic, um, which is originally why I chose it, but after watching it, honestly, I watched it today, later in the day after finding out Bernie uh, was out of the race, and... Um, it feels like this is a future a movie depicting a future that we might be like looking, looking down at ourselves. This is uh, an episode about children of men. And we have brought on an individual who let's just say uh, quarantine has uh, broken him because he won't stop posting videos where he uh, draws uh, faces on eggs and recreates scenes from the Titanic on his Instagram. Uh, Andrew, how are you holding up? This is Andrew DeMola out in the Bay Area. Andrew, uh, now we are actually in three of the main hubs of uh, the country. So why don't you tell us how you're doing in quarantine and your senses of the Bay Area right now? Yeah, so I'm in California right now in the Bay Area. I've been on lockdown for about a month. Um, it's an Instagram renaissance for me right now. Um, many people have reached out who I haven't talked with in years because of these weird egg videos that I'm putting on. Can you like um, describe your, your process with these? What, 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 why are you in this sort of apocalyptic feeling setting 
resorting to making videos of uh, of eggs. I mean, you're not a filmmaker. You're 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 a tech. Well, you're a, you're, you're a tech. Uh, that's you're, that's you know, a little. You're. Well, what? What? To say I'm not a filmmaker after everything I've been creating the last week is a little it, harsh. Dan, how can you deny Andrew the artistic merit of his? video in which one of the eggs or I think it was a Yu-Gi-Oh card was piloting mm-hmm. an Ava unit from the anime Neon Genesis Evangelion. Andrew, it's, it's great I, stuff. I, it's I, cinema. I thought Why are you not on TikTok? On... TikTok. This is TikTok content. I did think about going on TikTok, but um, I have certain uh, obligations where I am not allowed to go on TikTok. So I'm making use of the best platform I can, which is Instagram. Well, I, you know, I appreciate that you're finding your artistic uh, streak uh, with, I mean, can you describe again the process of these egg videos, you know, real quick? Yeah, so um, it started with me finding a bunch of expired eggs in my refrigerator, literally like four, six dozen eggs. I threw them out. And then an hour later, I was like, wait, I could create some videos with this. So an hour after throwing them out, I went to the trash can, took them out of the trash and then made my first video, which was me just like responding to some scene in community. After that, threw the eggs out again. Uh, the next day, woke up, kind of just like stood up in bed and realized there's a lot more to, to farm here. So I went outside, got the eggs from the trash can and brought them back inside and then made about six more videos. That's so a true you story. Th- you threw the eggs out. That's Why? <laughs> I have multiple questions. Well, for this and how did you threw them out? How did they not crack? So half and why cracked. did you throw them out? Well, I threw them out because they were expired. Like, why do I need six cartons of expired eggs in the refrigerator when it just has some background? All three of my roommates are gone, and I've just been, as I their food been, gets closer to expiration, been eating. So you you threw the eggs out, and yep. they survived being thrown out. Like, did you gently place them in the trash? You know, as I was throwing them out, I kind of thought that I should have saved them. So in my mind, I was thinking I could make another video out of this. So I think I knew that I was going to recover them tomorrow, but I just threw them out because I thought I was you know, done with them. Now, let me ask you this. How do you get those faces on the eggs? Because I feel like if I had a pencil to an egg, mm. I'd get the egg all over myself. It's actually pretty hard. So uh, I have a blue pen and a black pen, and then I draw different <laughs> different eyes and different noses. I've done some research of just what silly cartoon faces look like on Google Images, and then you know mock some eyes and noses up for that. Um, but the real the real problem is you work on an egg for so long that your hands get sweaty, and then um, the sweat on the egg causes the ink to blur about everywhere, and then you just have to throw an egg out and try again. So you really have about like sixty seconds working on an egg face before it just goes to shit. And, and are you using felt tip or ballpoint pen? Ball, ballpoint. That explains a lot. Okay. Yeah. So this is some kind of self-care crafts that our listeners can do themselves at home and for their own social media. This mm-hmm. isn't like intellectual property that you can steal from, from Andrew. Because uh, in, my, right. well, in my idea, like you have deleted these videos. Like they are not saved. Otherwise, why aren't they on YouTube? Oh, actually... Someone messaged me and asked me to upload them, so I put them as Instagram highlights, so they're all available for view. And where can people uh, find you on Instagram? Instagram, Andrew Demola. They're all there. There's two highlights. One is called The Eggs, which is six egg videos. The other highlight is called Not The Eggs, which is a, 
a video of me singing um, the first line of the three little pigs on a Facebook portal device, which uh, got a lot of popularity too. Once upon a time, there was a family of three pigs. Patty Pig, Paul Pig. All right. So, Andrew, thank you for that introduction. Um, mm. Andrew, I wanted to bring you on to talk about this movie because I knew you were alone in the Bay Area, uh, quarantined like me. Uh, Sam, obviously, uh, living. Uh, not alone as we've, we've discussed on prior episodes. So I, I just, I felt you would kind of get the vibe of this movie though, given that you were already kind of uh, in the solitary madness. You've entered kind of the future here and the future yeah. that I, I don't know that I see for us is one that children of men kind of depicts. So it's true. I've been alone for about a month and the whole reason we were talking about the eggs is just because um, I've gotten sort of so, so isolated that I just need to express myself in some weird format, whether it's through like egg videos on Instagram. But just like on that sort that same sort of thread, uh, on the trailer of Children of Men, they have this voiceover line that says, I can't really remember when I last had any hope, and I certainly can't remember when anyone else did either. And then it goes into about like, you know, because women can't have children anymore. But that line is kind of, I don't know encapsulates like what's going on right now i think for all of us even pre-pandemic but certainly like during the pandemic i think that's a perfect encapsulation of how we feel sam do you have any background information on this movie uh we got clive owen you got julianne moore you got michael kane you got chiwete iwa you got charlie hunnam you got a, a pretty stacked cast here uh this movie was like a mid-2000s movie i saw it in high school, I remember. What what info do you have about this uh, this release? So this came out in in the U.S. It came out December twenty fifth, Christmas Day of two thousand six. Like you said, it is very mid two thousands. I always think that two thousand six is really kind of the year that Americans turned on George Bush. It's right after Hurricane Katrina and the way that his malpractice and inability to respond to that crisis basically wound up with at least a thousand people dead in the city of New Orleans and surrounding low-lying areas. This movie has a very strong aesthetic of near future, but it's not like the Jetsons at all. There's actually very little technology in the movie. This movie was directed by Alfonso Cuaron, uh, who also directed such movies as Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. <laughs> And then also recently, Roma, which is fabulous. And I think that won him some Oscars. And we did Gravity as well. Was Gravity also one. won him Best Director. I think those are his two Academy Awards for Best Director is Gravity and Roma. And it's interesting to me, the box office for this was actually, for Children of Men, was actually pretty low. It, was, it came in just under the budget at around $70 million. And I, I mean, this isn't like a lighthearted fair. Why would they it's release not, this at Christmas time? <laughs> Well, some people do read a bit of a Christ narrative or have see biblical symbols in the movie, but it came out early. It came out in the fall in the UK. It's only in the US that it was released around Christmas, which is fitting because America really does Christmas unlike any other nation, to be honest. But either way, yeah, that's a little background on the film. And it As is an just, adaptation of a book by P.D. James of the same title. 
but but it's a very different narrative in the book. There's um I also want to point out that there's a lot of um religious influence in the movie, like Sam was talking about. Uh one of the scenes later on in the movie is uh a woman cradling her dead son, which I can assume is her dead son, just like uh as a throwback to La Pieta, which is also referenced as a work of art that was lost where the Virgin Mary is cradling the dead body of Jesus. And then there are these groups called the repenters and the renouncers that sort of self-flagellate themselves or just kind of kneel and pray for a month on end. So I don't think we have done like the setup of the movie yet. And what leads those people to this sort of, you know, repenting mindset is that the uh, world has lost human fertility. Humans no longer can have children. The film begins in the year 2027. And the film opens with news uh, clippings, like footage of broadcasts where you hear it's day 1000 of the siege of Seattle. Uh, You hear about border closings and army occupation of mosques. You hear about mass deportations out of London. And then we start in London where Clive Owen's character, Theo, has learned, uh, he's watching a TV with a bunch of people in a coffee shop, and he has just learned along with the rest of them that the last baby born in the world has just died of a stabbing because he refused to sign an autograph. And (laughs) it was the perfect kind of uh, way to set up the sort of desperation that would lead to the actions of every character in this movie, you know? To be specific, the infertility issue lies with women in the movie. In the book, supposedly, the issue is that men are the infertile ones. But in the movie, they flipped it to have it specifically be that women are no longer getting pregnant. And the issue is believed to be something with female infertility. There's not a lot of background or exposition given in the film. Alfonso Cuaron has a good quote about cinema not being held hostage by narrative. He prefers to have narrative held hostage by cinema. He prefers to show rather than tell. And a lot of these details, it doesn't really matter. Is it caused by a virus? Is it caused by environmental degradation? Sure. It's caused by any any combination of those things. And it's kind of left open-ended. What we are left to contend with is the way people react in a world. Like Andrew said in the trailer, they say it's a world without hope. Once, I think they said, either the director or the author, P.D. James, said something along, along the lines of, when adults no longer have to worry about making the world safe for their children, they no longer care about keeping itself for other people. They, most, they only care about self-interest at that point. And unfortunately, I think that's ringing true for a lot of us as I don't know, global capitalism starts to buckle under its own weight. And we're instantly thrown into this chaos through kind of tracking shots of Theo walking down the street. He's pouring uh, liquor into his coffee and the cafe he was just in gets bombed. I was talking to Sam before and he said, uh, I want to bring this up kind of now, the the visually, the uh, parallels to Israel and uh gaza Could you yeah specifically i thought that the the checkpoints because a big issue in this movie is you know my wheelhouse immigration and basically 
another way to set this up, like Dan said, it starts in November of 2027. So not that far out from where we are now. And it wasn't really that far out from 2006 when this movie came out. And supposedly basically every nation has fallen apart. Like they have a newsreel of all the major cities. It's a propaganda film of all the major cities around the world that have all fallen into complete disarray and are now failed states with, the lone exception of, you guessed it, <laughs> fucking United Kingdom. The, the least likely, a fucking island nation is the only one that hasn't succumbed. An island nation f- filled with, I mean, Brits are making fun of us a lot these days for Donald Trump or whatever, but they're, they're at least as chaotic as we are, honestly. Brexit was, I guess, kind of a harbinger of Trump for me, at least. They've got their own issues. So it is, it's, it's not exactly plausible to me that, like, of all countries in the world, it would be the UK that survives. But either way, that's where we're at in the movie. And so everyone wants to go from their failed state to the United Kingdom, the last functioning government on Earth. And there are lots of checkpoint scenes where people are in cages, more or less, and admitted you know, one at a time by an officer after having their papers searched. And there are people of different races who don't look like the average Briton, as it were. And this does specifically remind me of like pictures of checkpoints in the West Bank. And um, it looks a lot like prison camps in the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war and some of the images that came out, which were kind of fresh at that time as well and definitely shocking in the film. And the movie also has a very camcorder style of cinema. It doesn't, there's a lot of shaky cam and different techniques that are employed to make it sort of look like a reality show, which is also very mid-2000s. I was thinking the uh, aesthetic almost of like uh, war reporting that was going on during Iraq. I want to bring up quickly that um, I really feel like this movie could have been made uh, this year, last year, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. It shows no signs of aging and could be relevant to any time period that I've experienced my entire life. Yeah, and Alfonso Cuaron has pretty good politics as far as directors go. He's worked with Naomi Klein and, on documentaries and other luminaries. He actually was in, influenced by Slavoj Žižek as he was creating the script for this film. The dialectic of the coronavirus. Like he's he's definitely in our camp on the left wing, and I think that his eye for what was to come, which you could see coming during the Bush years, everyone kind of these days remembers the Bush years as this halcyon period compared to the Trump years. But I don't really remember it that way. I I like to show in the videos all the time of Michael Moore getting booed at the Oscars for criticizing the Iraq War. I think during that time there was a lot of groupthink and kind of conformity of thought that we don't necessarily have today. And the Oscar goes to... (sighs) Bowling for Columbine. Michael Moore and Michael Donovan! Um, I'd like to thank the Academy for this. I've invited uh, my fellow documentary nominees on the stage with us. And we would like to, they are here, they are here in solidarity with me because we like nonfiction. We like nonfiction and we live in fictitious times. We live in a time where we have fictitious election results 
that elects a fictitious president. We, we live in a time where we have a man sending us to war for fictitious reasons, whether it's the fiction of duct tape or the fictitious of orange alerts. We are against this war, Mr. Bush. Shame on you, Mr. Bush. Shame on you. And any time you've got the Pope and the Dixie Chicks against you, your time is up. Nowadays, it's almost, I don't know, passe to make fun of the president. But back then, it was sort of taboo to do that. And I think that Quaron, as we were making our way out of the Bush years, Quaron was very good in his eye. And that comes through in the movie. You know, you'll have Theo in the frame doing something, but the background like tells a whole other story. You really get a sense of the gravity of the baby Diego dying. Um, at 18 years old when Theo walks into his office and just everyone is watching videos of it at their computer and crying. It seems to me like I was watching that and every woman was crying, but I didn't see any man crying in that scene, which I thought was very interesting. Stiff also, upper lip yeah. in the UK. Uh, with Baby Diego, it really feels like today is an appropriate day to film it because there's a scene where he goes into his boss and says, hey, I'm not feeling so good, you know, with Baby Diego, can I take a day off? Um, Bernie is really our baby Diego today and I almost thought of you know asking my manager hey you know uh Bernie is out so I kind of want to take the day off like that same sort of thing no totally I was like offline today most of the day just because I wasn't I didn't ask for the time off but I was just sort of having the laptop open and not doing anything just because I I didn't feel like it he he is our baby Diego even though he's 78 years old and I do think it's funny that there's a sort of this is a sort of pre-social media movie. It's, I think social media was around in 2006, but it wasn't like the way it is today where it controls like every facet of our lives. So Nor would I, you have like, uh, there wouldn't be these like Facebook moms at Theo's office like crying about baby Diego. Yeah, uh, I guess I just mean, it reminds me of the, it's sort of funny because they almost predicted the social exactly. media thing. And they also tie it into the specifically British fetishism of symbols. Like, you know about the Brits and their poppies and that shit, like the, the Veterans Day poppies. They remember the veterans of World War One and World War II with these poppies. And on what, I forget what they call, you know, Armistice Day in, the, in, in British or in Commonwealth countries or whatever. But there, if you're like outside without a poppy, there's all these like tabloid scandals of, you know, this politician didn't wear his enough poppies or whatever like that. Oh, it's and, like their version of the flag pin. Yeah, more or less. But they they go really ape over it. And I think that they, he's, Quaron, once again, it's clever the way he kind of ties in what people in the UK are like now and the way they are obsessed with these symbols to a future situation where they would all be going as nuts over, I guess, baby Diego as they do currently over like the Royals or something else that doesn't really matter. You also uh, see Theo kind of using it as an excuse to get out of work. He's not really like actually upset himself about baby Diego. I think he's more just by that point, like numb to the dying world. And at that point, like, yeah, when you think about it, if there's no children again, like what hope would there be if like you concretely know there's no future, like there is an end cutoff date, right? 
I was thinking about this a lot, um, just if I was placed in that context, would I care? I mean, specifically about baby Diego, I wouldn't care. But just about the state of the world, nobody can be born, uh, end of humanity. I don't know, like, if you were to place me as I exist right now in that situation, I feel like I would be mostly unaffected. I'm not someone who's interested in children. I'm just someone who likes to live their life. And I mean, I think I would try and take take advantage of things that are still around like amusement parks or something because in 20 or 30 years, like, I mean, that's not a great example, but you know, the sorts of things that old people can't operate and will immediately go first. Um, But I mean, what do you guys think? Would you, would you have this crisis? Would you be sad all the time? I mean, honestly, I think we functionally do exist in a world without, it's not like people can't have kids, but if you're thinking you're going to have a child now, what do you think your child's life is going to be like in 10, 20 years? We already kind of have worse at life, at, you know, health outcomes or economic outcomes than our parents' generation. And what do you think it's going to be like for our children? It's, I think, functionally, especially since, you know, I, I mean, look I'm in the short the term, percent unemployment. Everyone's yeah. like, there is no future right now. Yeah, or like ecological collapse that we're on the absolute precipice of. It looks like in the next 10, 20 years, the world is going to be largely unrecognizable as a result of global warming. And we're seeing the effects of it now. I think we largely do operate in a world where, even if it's not infertility, there are every de- developed countries are all seeing a decline in birth rates. Obviously, you hear about a lot in countries like Japan, but even in like the US, a lot of a lot of countries are having this issue where they're have you dealing with a, a declining population and they don't know what to do about it. And I think a large part of it is this perception, even if it's unspoken, that we do sort of live in a more or less hopeless world. The atmosphere again is set with a radio report highlighting and there's constant looping radio uh, news reports and propaganda sort of audio playing that says reminder that sheltering illegal immigrants is a crime you know and you said like britain's supposed to be the like civilized country but like what makes them civilized that like the borders are closed what is making that desirable in a like post pandemic as we find out world i think um part of the magic of the film is not every answer is there. So, I mean, I don't think specifically Britain, London would be the last holdout, last bastion in this situation, but I'm perfectly fine without an answer there. Um, Just as a weird note, uh, as I was doing some research, everything I read said uh, Britain and Angola are the two last holdouts of humanity, uh, the country in Africa. I yeah, angle is the very strange. Wow. Well, it's because yeah. Castro sent troops there in like the eighties or whatever. It's it's because of Cuban solidarity, actually. Uh we then meet the greatest character of the movie, uh Jasper, who is played by Michael Caine in what has to be my favorite Michael Caine performance. Uh what's so great about Jasper? Like it, it Michael Caine, I think of as like such a dignified like Englishman. This character is like so uh, not that. Yeah, he's playing against type. He's like this long-haired hippie. He has all these pictures of Theo and his his ex-wife Julian 
in protests, even like there's a lot of anti-Iraq war memorabilia around his his house, which I think is great. And he clearly lives kind of off the grid in the woods. He grows and sells weed to cops, to immigration police specifically, <laughs> who he has a kind of love-hate relationship with. But I think that Jasper is such a welcome voice on the camera or sight on the camera because he's actually happy and cracks jokes and is jovial and is a direct counterpoint to, I mean, Theo, the only thing we get out of him early on is that he's in this kind of malaise, this existential crisis. He's just drinking. He's trying to get out of work for basically no reason. Then he shows up at Jasper's and I know the, the, he's he's a very needed comic relief, especially early on in the film. On the way to drive to Jasper's farm, he like Theo sees like burning cows and shit. Like there's so much uh, interesting scenery in this movie. A lot of animals, a lot of like sheep and chickens and shit running through the frame. It's really uh, ambitious uh, in that way. Yeah, and I know that Dan is at some point going to ask me what makes this the Hog Planet movie. And what does, I, I had to think of the connection in advance so I could be a little more prepared as a podcasting professional. But what this movie makes me think of is that humanity, once you strip away society and hope and our you know, intellectual designs, we are really nothing more than livestock. We're just meat bags. And the film does a lot to, I mean, our, our biggest issue is that our birth rate is declining. And that is something you, you would think you would describe with if you're breeding sheep or something and you had a bad year, it's like that sort of problem, but writ large and we're the sheep, if that makes sense. And I feel like uh, I didn't mention the background you get in like a few quick shots of jasper's mantle you see that jasper's wife was a photojournalist uh, an award-winning photojournalist and she is now catatonically silent effectively seems to be basically like a vegetable and there was a headline that jasper had saved that said she was tortured by the government uh clearly for some sort of photojournalism she did regarding uh refugees I think the images Quaron is showing us throughout the movie are probably the kind of images like she was photographing of like violence done towards refugees or, you know, illegal immigrants. And it also says that Jasper was a political cartoonist. So it makes sense that they were together because they were both in the sort of uh, newspaper business. It also makes sense that he would be a cartoonist because he has this kind of humorous and jovial personality. But I did want to mention that the connection between immigration and the fertility issue would be not directly related or if anything the uk with the declining population would want to accept immigration because then their population would no no longer decline but the reason those two are, are connected and why one of the things that's so brilliant about this movie is that the issue is that the British population is declining, like the good British stock. Brits are nothing if not, I mean, they're, they're racist, but they're also like, they don't like Polish people. They, like, they, they have beef with all their all kinds of non-British white people as well. It's, it's this very, 
I mean, some people have said that white supremacy is really sort of a form of narcissism. And I think that this movie, the, the reason they're so upset about the illegal immigration is not necessarily because immigrants bring crime or because they're overwhelmed. I think it's also because the people who are coming in are not British. It's hurting the British. Like if you, again, going back to like the livestock analogy, or if you think of someone breeding hogs, just to keep it topical then you would want the breed to remain pure. And that's the kind of mentality that the British people in this, the people who are against illegal immigration kind of have. It's not like the issue is purely that populations are declining worldwide. The issue is that their population, like their good racial population is declining. They cannot reproduce the, the white race. And you, whenever you look at white supremacy, you see a huge issue with any time people, white people are not able to reproduce. And I think that's something that's very clever about the connection between infertility and illegal immigration in the movie. Jasper also, I think one thing you like about him is he comes off as kind of, um, I don't know, he comes off as actually like empathetic. Like he, he wants Theo to feel better because and another thing you see is that Theo and his ex-wife used to have a son. Uh, Jasper has a picture of them on his mantle. So clearly, A, their friendship goes back a long time, and Theo is dealing with some sort of grief. Yeah, he definitely feels like a father figure there. There's this whole speech he has about just talking about how we've all had like a, a rough go of it, and no matter what, it all goes down the chance at the end, and the chance hasn't been in their favor. Oh, it's uh, everything is a mythical cosmic battle between faith and chance. And there's a lot of, you know, imagery with religion and faith in the movie. And then he uh, offers somebody a joint right after saying that. Yeah. And I, I like that Theo says it was too late even before the infertility started. And that kind of brought me to like our current moment again in my mind. I was like, this is kind of like the constant state of things, this sort of fighting against chance and destiny and all those sort of things that seem like out of your hands. So let's move forward with the plot a little bit. After this meeting, Theo is captured by the Fishes, which is a kind of radical pro-immigrant group, again, with a little bit with Christian imagery, with you know the Fishes. And they are led by Julian, who is played by Julianne Moore, Julian is Theo's ex-wife and they offer him 5,000 pounds to smuggle someone in who is pregnant. They don't know this yet. He just has to, I believe Theo works in immigration and he is tasked with smuggling someone in. She's been on the run and she has done bombings and various other sort of radical uh, campaigns. Yeah, specifically she wants to get hit him to uh, talk to his cousin who is a sort of like art bureaucrat with all of these amazing pieces. So she wants him to get the transit paperwork, but like this whole thing is very strange because he's the ex husband, presumably of this very large um, terrorist leader. So the fact that they wouldn't check his credentials or they'd want him involved in something like this was very strange to me. Like, like, who would you investigate first? Oh, I don't know. Like, the ex-husband of the terrorist leader, you know? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's something you think would come up. <laughs> but um, I also like so much that the rich guy lives in Battersea Power Station, which 
if you know, is the, it's the power station on the Pink Floyd album, Animals. And he even has the inflatable pig flying around the power I station. I thought I recognized that, right? Yeah. <laughs> Battersea is a co- uh, commonly used as a film set inside and outside because it's a kind of a striking, imposing, formerly coal production plant, I believe. But it's clearly like the latest of late capitalism because this guy literally has Michelangelo's David. He has Picasso's Guernica and he lives in Battersea. Like he's uber, uber wealthy to, to an extent that like, I guess the robber barons in like the Gilded Age were and maybe to the extent that like tech billionaires are today. Uh, another thing in that uh, sequence, I think you see a billboard that says, uh, I just think this sets up kind of the like fash sort of uh, atmosphere we're dealing with. And it says avoiding fertility tests is a crime. So it's like, clearly they're still like seeking the magic. Like there, there's still like hope that someone will be fertile, I guess. Yeah. yeah really- the other ads are for the quietus, which is government sponsored uh, self euthanasia. So, I mean, there's a kind of a double edged sword there. I mean, the fact it's amazing. All the, the bleakness of like the TV screens in the background is something like whether it be the, the pro British propaganda, the anti-immigrant propaganda or the commercials selling you what looks like an antidepressant, but is basically an assisted suicide kit decide when you go is the tagline and i was like oh imagine seeing that on a bus ad but it's like i could see that on a bus ad absolutely and and then like one thing i one last thing i wanted to mention about the rich guy nigel who lives in battersea power station he has an amazing quote where theo asks him like how he does it and like how does he go on in a world without hope and the rich guy while looking out on his like splendid view says you know what it is theo i just don't think about it which is, I mean, that is the prevailing mentality of the elites today, I think. Because people, are, you know, normal people like us would think, why aren't they scared? Don't they see these, like, existential crises coming up? If it's not COVID-19, is, isn't it something like global warming that might spur them to do something that it helps other people and doesn't just purely benefit themselves? And the answer is no. They want to, they like a fucking pharaoh in Egypt want to be buried with all their belongings. And that's, I, it's almost like the Nigel lives in his own tomb. It reminds me of like the story a couple of weeks ago of all the Republican senators uh, just like, still using the gym facilities in the, in the Senate building and just swimming together and going to sauna together and presumably eating and doing all these other things because they think uh, in some sense, because they're doing these actions that it's not serious or it doesn't affect them or there will be some sort of out for them because they have the power or means to do whatever it is so they're not affected. In a movie where you see so much just like dirt poor, like desperate, injured, hungry, stripped of all dignity, there's some, in some scenes, like you see people who are literally like stripped of their clothes on the street. You know, this is the atmosphere we're, we're, we're uh, seeing in this movie. Um, just a quick note on effective advertising. There's one scene where Theo wakes up and his alarm is the TV and the TV is playing the quietest commercial. So the first thing I think of when I wake up is fucking hate life. I just want to end this. And so if I just see that commercial as the first thing when I wake up and I don't want to get a bed, I don't know, it'd be pretty effective. They're doing a good job. And Mondays are enough to kill me, am I right? <laughs> So uh, he gets the transit papers. We see, uh, you know, an example of opulent wealth. So clearly some people are still living pretty good 
in uh, this 2027 world we are uh, in here. And this brings us to what is like the scene of the movie. The, the, this is the, the scene I remembered. This is the scene where uh, it's like the long shot. I think everyone knows it as. Yeah, that's another hallmark of this movie is very long shots. Some are over like four minutes. And I think so just before we get to that, Theo meets Luke, who is another person in the fishes. He is played by Chiwetel Ojiofor at the racetrack because, of course, we still have dog races in a dystopian future. And um, he gets a picture and then he... He does. He agrees to get the to smuggle her in, but he says all he could get is joint papers. So he'll have to basically escort her personally, which he agrees to do for more cash. And uh, either way, he meets up with Julian. I guess I think on the bus, if I remember right. And then she pitches the idea to, and they go to do the thing. Uh, Yeah, and like escort the package, you know, to uh, where it needs to go. Obviously, this is like a risky mission. This is sort of, you know, uh, you could tell that the stakes are about to ramp up here. And this is also the beginning of the chase sequence. Like the rest of this movie is basically a balls out chase movie, uh, even though it takes place over, you know, a period of time. And that's the, the sense you get is like Theo's is sort of running, trying to run towards just feeling anything. And that's why I feel like he dives headfirst into this task especially once he realizes what the stakes are because like it is a sort of like chase for him and you know from here he is like both chasing and being chased am i right folks right and at this point he also doesn't know that the person he's escorting is pregnant right so we're suddenly in the car with you got luke driving you have this uh, woman, Miriam, who is, we'll later find out, a midwife. And we meet Key, who is a woman uh, in the backseat of the car. We also have Theo in the backseat of the car and Julian in the passenger seat. Uh, Julian and Theo have a kind of like nice, sweet moment where they like, they like spit a golf ball back and forth. And then they <laughs> kind of kiss. It's kind of sweet. And this is only to set up, again, uh, this very long shot. Uh, I don't know how long exactly it is, but here's what happens in it, basically. A uh, quick summary of the action. Uh, they're driving down the road. Luke notices a burning car uh, suddenly, like, coming from the woods, and it hits the road. Suddenly, like, dozens of these militia-looking types storm the car, uh, hitting it with uh, barbed objects. Very quickly, Julian is shot in the neck, it appears, by a guy on a motorcycle who I believe is played by Charlie Hunnam. Uh, he's, got, he's a white guy with dreadlocks, so you know he's bad news. Never a good sign. Uh, suddenly, in the same long shot, they get pulled over by cops. Luke then shoots both of the cops, and Theo the whole time is like, what the fuck is going on? Because the cops were like, we'll call for help. And again, like you, you get the sense you can't really trust a- anybody in this in this movie in once this scene happens because you're in an entirely like unfriendly environment. Like there is no, there's no help coming. There's no allies. Like he's just 
I don't know. This is when you get the sense that like the world is fucking against uh, Theo and the goal here. Yeah. And he's also in an organization that he's not really familiar with. And he's up against, I guess, the, the, all the might of the British government. So he's kind of between a, a hard rock and a, what, is, what is it? A rock and a hard place. I'm forgetting right. my cliches. Uh, yeah. And the whole scene, you really feel like trapped in the car with them. Julian's bleeding out. Uh, everyone's freaking out. Uh, fucking Clive Owen does the coolest shit where he like uh, opens the door to knock uh, the dreadlock guy off of his motorcycle. And that was the only reason like he didn't get shot himself. Uh, this long shot is, and you know, you could tell Theo is super upset at this. It, uh, the long shot ends with them driving away from this like double murder of these cops. Theo is very upset that uh, his ex-wife has died he's like cradling a cigarette and like can barely move uh at this point he tries to hide it and then just does that thing i mean the the main one of the things that happens in the movie a lot where you have the foreground and the background shot where it's just the foreground he just crumples into himself like dan was saying and in the background you see just the other action that's happening yeah and once they go to their safe house uh he summons theo to the barn where she takes off her like robe and reveals that uh, she is pregnant and the fishes come into the barn. And I mean, this is like a powerful moment in the movie. Like, I don't know. I, I really felt like Theo in this moment watching this where you're like, holy shit. Like this thing we thought was impossible is possible. Like it's like you've seen God or something. Yeah, it definitely is biblical. I mean, he's he's brought to his knees by the sight of, for all intents and purposes in this movie, the Christ, like a Christ-like child, yeah. basically the only hope, the saving grace for humanity in its bleakest time. He who is saying that there was no father, that it was like immaculate conception. That's in this case, Theo is kind of Joseph and like shepherding her to deliver the child safely. The end goal is for the, to deliver key to the human project. Uh, and I wrote he, down, it reminds me of the human fund from Seinfeld, like George's <laughs> fake charity. Well, Andrew, but, it reminds me of the human instrumentality project from uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion. But <laughs> either way, uh, you can pick. It, it's, it, yeah. it doesn't need to be the coolest name. It could be anything. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it also, like wide. you said, it could be anything. There's no real, it, like, we don't know anything about the human project. It's just vaguely an organization that wants to, like, hope, help humanity study the infertility issue and solve the problem and attention of the movie too is and this is kind of explored a little bit later but like that they've never spoken directly to the human project like they don't actually know if they're going to come so the whole movie is like an act of faith uh almost yeah uh i think something worth pointing out is that you know she's in like a barn stable sort of environment with a bunch of cows around her um veritable manger right exactly andrew very good um, <laughs> thank you yeah, somebody here I, went know, to Sunday I, school. Think, well, I don't think i don't think of you as like a religious scholar i, I guess maybe you had a little bit of that education growing up but well I, I was called brilliant in my film class in high school so good and you're, you're using those skills now with your egg uh projects mm-hmm. the media report that we see uh says julian was killed in a gunfight with cops and that she killed 
the cops. So clearly this has already been spun. Um, and you know, she's the face of this, you know, they're, they're trying, it's trying to be spun as she's like the face of a terrorist, uh, movement here. Yeah, again, the only constant in the UK is their god-awful media, either just utter, like, gossip and nonsense with, you know, or extreme Piers tabloids. Morgan. Exactly, or, like, ta- like, tabloids or just outright propaganda is basically all you're getting from the TV in Children of Men and, honestly, probably even in current-day England. So, things escalate kind of quickly after that. Theo wants to make it public and the fishes uh, you know this this cell of of uh you know this gang uh multi multi-racial uh multi you know it, it's kind of a mixed men and women uh they're arguing that the government will take the baby that the army and the government will seize it once they know it exists yeah theo kind of naively says well why don't if you're pregnant why don't we go public with it and she uh key comes out and reminds him that she is an illegal immigrant into the uk that they even if they are happy that she is going to have what is probably the first and only child in 18 years or whatever it will it will not be born to a good Briton. It'll be born to a, a Fuji, you know, someone who's not supposed to be there or whatever. So they're not going to see it as the miracle that it indubitably is. Suddenly, you know, one of many betrayals or shifts in the movie, Theo overhears Luke and others in the fishes saying that Luke orchestrated the shooting and killing of Julian, that these you know the dreadlocked guy you know everyone chasing them in the long shot uh and attacking the car that these were in fact hot uh, put up to it these people were put up to it by luke and the other fishes so they could take julian out and uh they they will take the baby for their own revolutionary uprising he also learns that he's going to be taken out the next morning as well uh, and this also sets the stage for what seems to be a rift in the Fishes organization where Luke seems more militant and is trying to organize, I guess, refugees and resistance to the British state and what he calls the uprising, which seems to be this idea that they could win a pitched battle with military force against the British state, which we'll see come up later. And they do have firepower. I mean, they have a lot of uh, heavy uh, guns and stuff. So, you know, you, you wouldn't want to fuck with the fishes. Like, it's not necessarily, like, ISIS or something. Like, I wouldn't say that that's a comparable. But I don't know. Like, what about the IRA? I don't know much about them. Is that... that that's the vibe I get from them is, like, especially with the mention of, uh, you know, the fact that Julian is a controversial figure because she was involved with these bombings. And I guess the kind of cultural memory of the IRA in the United Kingdom, which obviously was a, depending on who you ask, they're heroic freedom fighters for the Irish cause, or they are just terrorists who bomb, blew up a ton of people in across the United Kingdom and Ireland. So, I mean, either way, but uh, I definitely get some vibes from that. It seems like the way they kind of portray that event in their cultural memory, but updated for a not so distant future. Even Theo says earlier in the movie, um, oh, so you don't do those bombings any bombings anymore? Uh, referring to all these other things that have happened, and like people they've killed, and I think Julian at the time has just said, "Oh no, we're past that." When clearly they're the type of group that is not past that at all. 
clearly in their marriage like she was more of the radical one though uh you know between her and theo and uh, that clearly drove a rift in their marriage uh, aside from uh, losing their child yeah he even says at one point you were in it for the politics like i was in it just to get laid or something which (laughs) i don't think that actually i think he's just being braggadocious in that moment because the over the course of the movie he kind of grows and clearly develops a strong sense of purpose for his mission but either way, so we know that Luke is collaborating with the white dreadhead guy to kill Julian and to take the child for his own means. So Key and Theo and Miriam escape with the car that... That's uh, a great scene too, right? Where it's, it's like, yeah, the car won't start. It reminded me almost of, and this is in like a good way, like uh, a video game, like a Metal Gear Solid type of like sneak video game but the filmmaking is like the sound and like everything you're seeing so andrew you want to walk us through that yeah actually i was thinking um when i was watching the movie last night that it reminded me of a video game the entire plot of the movie could be the plot of some game that i've played and in fact is very similar to the plot of final fantasy 7 which is coming out uh in a day or so um where this organization of rebels uh they just constantly are trying to fight for the people, but are killing people. And then the government is claiming that, uh, you know, when the government kills whoever it is that they kill, it was in fact this organization. But in fact, both sides kind of. But in the in the (laughs) but in the way, (laughs) it was cool how. um, But but wouldn't you say that part of the like video gamey kind of like tension oh yeah it's was, like was a, there but from the like the car won't start and then theo has to like push it through the mud to get the car yeah to start, even before that yeah even before that when he's hopping between the cars and then sneaking in stealing the keys and then pulling the wires from the hood um and then there's the moment where he's almost caught and then not caught like you were saying exactly out of metal gear solid or any sort of stealth game so uh, at this point theo uh Key and Miriam, the midwife, get away. Theo, uh, not knowing where else to go, takes them to Jasper's uh, farm, which is remote. It's not like in the city. It, you know, there is, you know, if you were going to hide somewhere, I guess that's not a bad spot to pick. Um, Key reveals that she's eight months pregnant, so the baby is like on its way soon. Jasper also says to Key at this point that. And this is, this is, I had the subtitles on, and it's, man, I was waiting for this. That Theo and Julian's son, Dylan, died in the 2008 flu pandemic. So, what do we think about that, fellas? Uh, this movie's reading me for filth right now, I believe is the correct phrase. <laughs> I don't know. I, I definitely, my eyes kind of opened a bit when and they were like, yeah. <laughs> pandemic. I mean, you know, it's just a word we've heard a lot this year. There's that. And then also earlier in the movie, um, when Julian, and Theo reconnect. Uh, she asks about his mother or something, and he says, "Oh, she was lost in New York." And then he says, "Oh, your parents were lost there too." Where right now, New York, New Jersey, uh, really the epicenter of this whole virus. And from something I read today, there have been more deaths there in the last day or the last two days than in any other country in the world, including China. Yeah, it's like multiple times the population of not just New York <laughs> but the entire United States. I don't know. I just when when you hear that phrase of they were lost in New York. That exact thing could be said to me in five years from now. Oh, and I appreciated that they uh, cleared up why uh, Julian, Julianne Moore didn't have a British accent because it's like she's from New York. 
Yeah. It, it's cool the way, like we discussed earlier, that they leave these kind of plot points open-ended because, I mean, Andrew, you're thinking of it as, a, as the pandemic, killing people in New York. I mean, I can see why you would draw that conclusion watching it today. But my thought was like, oh, did the rush, did, did someone nuke New York City or something? Is Because we know that basically every other country other than Angola is a failed <laughs> state. I mean, you, you, I, I was thinking this whole time, like these Brits are really strapped and they don't even have gun culture over there. Like if this is what uh, the UK, the last functioning state in the world looks like at this time what does the united states look like right now is probably like roving hordes of cannibals by 2027 and children of men world yeah like escape from new york basically uh, like very just already like post-apocalyptic whereas the uh england we see like there is still this beautiful countryside uh there you know it, it's not totally like burned out yet even though you do see like burning cows burning bodies like even on the way to jasper's like i remember and the first time he goes there i might have mentioned this before but you see like a burning cow it's like even in the most beautiful like lush green scenery which isn't like this like gray crumbling stone that we see in so much of the movie um you know there is like death and destruction yeah, and it kind of stretches the interpretation of functioning state because if, if the United Kingdom, as is presented in Children of Men, is a functioning state, I mean, wouldn't every country more or less be saying that they probably are a functioning state, especially as like media gets cut off from the outside world? You would be saying, oh, everything else is so much worse. Here in uh, Luxembourg, things are great. So just stay here and don't pay attention. I feel like every other country is maintaining some sort of internal propaganda, even if they are failed states. It sort of seems like the United Kingdom at this stage is a failed state. It just happens to have a functioning military and stuff. But um, it sort of reminds me of the way today we act like, you know, People in the U.S. always act like the U.S. is, you know, the, the, the greatest country on earth. Like, it, sooner or later, we're going to be calling ourselves the last bastion of normalcy in the face of global warming or COVID-19 or whatever it's going to be. And I think a lot of people have, can argue that today we, the United States is starting to exhibit elements of a being a failed state. I mean, the, the way that it, it, it bungled this entire response to this pandemic is definitely showing the failures of i don't know the american government and the way we have things set up here yeah and i mean simply look at you know the april 1st came and the government you know did not do anything to take care of the percent whatever it is now unemployed uh, who had to pay rent i mean it's such a i mean if, if this isn't a failed state like what you know they're just directing all their money into the stock market that's right, we, baby. We, we live in a banana republic for finance capital, whereas like yeah. banana republics in Latin America in the 20th century were set up to protect fruit companies. We're basically to, here to support you know, the banking industry, more or less, or tech at some level, I guess. It's astonishing that like, like there was something like the bailout, the first like stimulus uh, you know, thing in corona times, uh, how much more care, uh, you know, was put into including shit that helped giant uh, businesses than uh, individuals who were sick or, you know, uh, having to still go to work or, I mean, where's the fucking like part of the bill for hazard pay? Where's like, there's, I, I don't know. Let's, let's get back to children of men. But uh, I feel like things we're seeing in children of men 
it's like I feel like we're looking into what our future is lo- is looking like. Even if it's not, you know, mass violence, it's gonna be like mass death. Yeah. So either way, our new plan is to have Jasper help help Theo smuggle Key into Bexhill, the kind of refugee like border city that becomes the center of the end of the movie and the rest of and from this point on. And the way they're going to do that is to have the prison guard that Jasper sells weed to smuggle them in. And like pretend that they were arrested and he'll like take them in because that's the only way they could be like, you know, taken over the border. We're not going yeah. to break out. We're going to break in. Yeah, that, oh, yeah. That guy's, we'll get to Sid, that guy, but he kept referring to himself in the third person. Yes, exactly. Sid and yeah. um, no, and it's basically the the Death Star escape scene from the first Star Wars movie, like the actual first one, A New Hope or whatever, where they have to clap Chewie in the in the handcuffs and everything. So this was the most like devastating part of the movie. The fishes break into Jasper's property. Uh, Jasper tells Theo that he will stay behind and that like, he's like, I've dealt with way tougher shit than this. As soon as Theo, Key and Miriam have, have fled Jasper's farm, we realize Jasper uh, maybe wasn't being so truthful to uh, Theo in a kind of really fucking devastating scene, uh, he gives his catatonic wife the quietest package. And there's all these like sad covers of Rolling Stones songs. I think it was like Ruby Tuesday in that scene, right? Yeah, there's actually a ton of 60s psychedelic music in it. There's Hush uh, by Deep Purple. And when he goes into Nigel's, you know, loft in Battersea power plant or whatever, they're playing King Crimson's in the court of the Crimson King. So part of the quietest package is that it comes with like relaxing music to listen to. Um, the car with Theo and the other two women is like stopped at the top of the hill so he can see what becomes of Jasper. The fishes, uh, including the uh, dreadlock uh, guy and Luke, search the house and they say there's a dead woman in there. So clearly uh, the, ca- the quietest uh, has been given to Jasper's wife, whose name I cannot remember. Um, Janice. Janice, also the dog. Oh, and the dog. Yeah, hate oh. violence against dogs in movies it kills <laughs> me. It kill- I feel that was- I, don't, I don't know what it is. I feel like I, I have to. I empathize with the dogs more than the characters half of the time. That was the one scene I cried. Everything else I didn't care about. Well, and uh, we we have to get to where it ends. Where Jasper is told, like, where are they? How, how long ago were they here? When did they leave? And he just keeps saying, pull my finger. So uh, he's shot in the hand. And then he says, pull my finger again. And he's shot again. And Theo sees this happen. And he sees Jasper say one more time, after he's already been shot twice, this fucking old hippie stoner. Uh, and he says, pull my finger like a third time. And he's did this bit with Theo earlier in the movie. And it's literally like, you know, pull my finger and I'll like fart and uh jasper is finally killed and more than any other moment in this movie theo is like to miriam like don't fucking talk to me like he feels full responsibility for what has happened here even though jasper is like old man michael kane he obviously knows he brought the violence here 
Yeah, and they and the a motive that recurs with deaths in this movie is the idea of tinnitus, which I believe Julian just explains to Theo at one point as the the ringing in your ears you hear after something loud, be it the you know the explosion that Theo witnesses in the beginning of the movie, or the, during the chase scene when Julian is shot, or now when Jasper is killed, we hear the tinnitus sound, and she says that it is the sound of your ear cells dying. And it's basically them screaming out. She says something along the lines of like, enjoy it because it's the last time you'll ever hear it and you won't get that hearing back. And it's sort of, I, I, I hear a phrase a lot that is what kill, doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And there's really no basis for this, especially when it comes to trauma. There's more evidence that it actually breaks you down over time. And I think it's, a, I think it's cool the way they kind of employ this. All of these, all of the slings and arrows that Theo s- s- suffers on the way to completing his goal thoroughly debilitate him the whole time and he bears these scars it's not like he overcomes and is made stronger because of them like they basically gradually wear him down t- until the end yeah every you know uh, i mean his ex-wife the woman he loved uh you know his son uh years before the start of the movie and now who appeared the guy who's pretty much his best friend and father figure uh is dead also, doesn't Jasper, like, give his wife, like, a hit of a joint, like, before? <laughs> Big time. <laughs> that was such a nice... I didn't realize moment. that's what it was. I thought it was just, like, <laughs> kissing, like, the tip of his finger to her lips. No, no I, I think, think, I think he, he's uh, rolling another number for the road. Oh, okay. You can tell that Jasper and Janice, like, long, like, a full life together lefties. Yeah, much yeah. like Carl and Ellie and Up. <laughs> God. Yeah, Andrew uh, said that he he regretted watching uh, Up uh, the first ten minutes. So in in quarantine, I don't know why you would do that alone. <laughs> I just woke up and for some reason I put it on YouTube and then turned it off and had a miserable day. Um. All right. So Miriam says <laughs> I, 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 we're moving on. Miriam says that the Human Project uh, contacted the fishes. Uh, through Julian, who w- they call her like a mirror, and reveals that they never actually spoke. So again, we, we it is revealed to Theo that like we don't really know if like there's anyone coming. He's very pissed. He's just oh, like, yeah. are you fucking kidding me? You haven't even talked to them. Like after mm-hmm. yeah, after all these punches he's taken, there's not even a guaranteed payoff. I just thought of this, but isn't it interesting that there don't appear to be... I don't feel like there's a lot of cell phone usage in this movie. No, not a lot of technology or even, like, current-day technology level, like, displayed in this. Yeah, like you said, there's no Jetsons. There's no, like, there's no, like, jetpacks. There's no... There's nothing cool. The future just is, like, a, sh- like a, a more bombed-out version of now. Yeah, no, it absolutely is. It's not... There. There's no effort to wow you with technology or anything like that i it gives me the sense that i guess once this issue once the the pandemic of infertility became an issue in this society technological innovation sort of stopped to a large degree i mean we do know that supposedly every other country is a completely failed state and the UK is on its last legs so it doesn't seem out of the i mean out of the question for me that technology just sort of stopped improving at a certain point in their world. 
Yeah, so uh, suddenly we're on a bus, a refugee bus. Uh, they're led there by Sid. Key's water breaks on this bus. Yeah, this and... is another really harrowing scene. <laughs> yeah. Because they're uh, under the eyes of Homeland Security. And of course, ho- the use of the word Homeland Security is one of the most to- mid-2000 things I can think of because people, a lot of people don't know this, but like currently our entire immigration system, which is underneath uh, Department of Homeland Security, was created in like 2003 is a remnant of the post 9-11 world. That, so that includes, Department of Homeland Security includes uh, ICE, the people who kick you out of the country, CBP, the people who don't let you into the country, and... Um, it, I, I, they only created that entity after 9-11, after the first attack on U.S. soil since Pearl Harbor. And um, yeah, it's definitely a, a, it's definitely a word that, or, or phrase that's supposed to make you think of what was then, you know, our current day. Also in this scene, uh, Miriam basically starts acting crazy to, to distract. The, she not crazy, religious but like, mania. Yeah, exactly. Um, because she knows that Theo will get key there. Like she has faith. She's a woman of faith, Miriam. Uh, and again, she's the midwife. Very necessary in this whole thing. Um, yeah. What did you make of the way her character was removed? Uh, and they put, they put a bag over her head and they drove away and like, we never saw them again. I, I almost thought it was like, it's like Cloverfield or something and how first person it was. It almost, yeah, I, I got the sense that like I was sitting on the bus watching. Yeah, Cloverfield actually did come out two years like after this movie. So, and 2000s were kind of the golden era of like found footage films, which is Cloverfield is much more of a true found footage film. But this, it apes some of the cinematography that you would expect from a found footage movie. And I, again, I, it's funny that we keep coming back to the image, to the motif of faith as a, as a, as an idea in this film. I mean, Miriam basically fakes religious mania to get thrown off, taking it on faith that Theo will deliver key to the human project, but Theo also he'll also, deliver the child. Yes. And also to the child, but Theo also has to kind of take it on faith that, they'll be okay without Miriam. Like he's really kind of on his own with key at the, after that point. And we also are, ne- we have no idea what's going to happen to Miriam. The scene of what the, of the immigration checkpoint on the way to Bex Hill when they're on the bus is one of the most harrowing sh- scenes in the entire movie. They have, like you said, they put a bag over Miriam's head, very reminiscent of Abu Ghraib. And we see all the, basically all these immigration like customs officers brutalizing refugees and people who have who are not seen as citizens or really fully fledged human beings in the UK uh, are just at their mercy it, it truly is brutal and this is the scene where out of the bus window you see uh refugees being like stripped naked at gunpoint you know uh, totally dehumanized uh that's uh that's where uh this this setting is it's like you're either like pointing a gun at a refugee or you're like, you know, being, uh, you know, you're at, at staring at the barrel of the gun. 
It's kind of atavistic. And also I wanted to mention that Sid, his character is so fucking br- brutal. He is one of the, he's one of the people with a gun. He lives in this doggy dog world. It is funny that the password for Sid that Jasper uses is to c- tell him that he's a fascist pig, uh, <laughs> which is objectively true. And Sid has really big Eddie Gallagher energy, throwing it back to our, first episode after the rebrand he has the mustache and everything and the gear and he's cracks a lot of jokes probably almost more than any other character other than jasper but he's the complete polar opposite of jasper it's sort of like a commentary on what people in this world have to do in order to keep their sense of humor almost so suddenly we are uh with theo and key walking through the city and this definitely is like it strikes a really different um i don't know uh mise-en-scene or something uh you see just um uh this clearly is where a lot of poor people are wherever i forgot what city they enter it's Bexhill. It's like the border town, which, I mean, you can think of a modern day example in the U.S., like Ciudad Juarez or something on the U.S.-Mexico border. These are places, like the being a border city, especially if it's a, uh, a highly militarized border, is never going to turn out well for the inhabitants. But they do find a place to sleep. And at this point, though, um, as uh, Theo, Theo uh, says, like, oh, she, like she's shit and pissed. He's like, caca, and he's like, piss. She's to get the cops who took uh, Miriam away, not to arrest them. Uh, so he sits next to a uh, key whose water is broke. He uh, again, brings her to this kind of uh, border town uh, where they're going to find a rowboat and find the human project. Um, and they find a place to sleep. And suddenly uh, Theo has to deliver uh, this baby without uh, Miriam, the midwife. So this scene, uh, yeah, you can definitely feel the divine sort of uh, imagery there. It almost feels like something pulled out of a sitcom. Like, oh, I got to deliver the baby now. Oh, where's the scissors for the umbilical cord? <laughs> the knocked up. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I have a lot of concerns for the sanitary, the level of sanitation that they achieve in this, uh, manger as it were They he is literally like sanitizing his hands with whiskey before he delivers the child, the child, she's, on, is a, she's on a dirty uh, floor mattress. Yeah. <laughs> he sanitizes his hands and then touches the couch and then his shirt and then just begins to help with the delivery. Don't touch your face, Clive. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but he successfully delivers the baby and it's, uh, it's, yeah, I mean, you know, it's the first baby born in 18 years. It's a big, it's a big thing. Uh, sorry, baby Diego. Uh, bye-bye. And, and it's a girl too, which is objectively mm-hmm. better because it, then that child may be able to also bear children <laughs> one day and we might keep this whole human gravy train a rolling, but yeah, by some 20 years older man. <laughs> yeah well we won't think about that (laughs) so sid is open-ended yeah please sid returns the next morning uh with uh this other woman uh marika yeah marika uh who can't speak english but she's uh you know she, she seems uh she seems to be on 
their side because uh, once Sid sees the baby, he kind of flips out and suddenly holds them at gunpoint. Uh, that uh, clearly Jasper didn't tell him the whole plan or well he sees key like kind of hiding something under the blanket and he's like yeah show me that what is it and he's like uh yeah and we it's hard to read his demeanor because like we said earlier he's kind of jovial and joking but he is a fascist pig who could shoot you at any fucking time with impunity so it, but i think that there's a lot of like tension of based on what is he going to do but once he is confirms that it is a child we do definitely see a serious change in his demeanor and we start to realize that he's really the the one that we're relying on to be to shepherd them out of the safe house and through Bexhill, which is basically a war zone at this point because the uprising led by the fishes is now openly like clashing with the british military i think they literally said they blew a hole in the gate yeah just to get to them yep Oh, I don't think I said this before, but I wanted to have this in the show that um, Jasper's death was very Boromir. <laughs> Even though it wasn't like redemptive, it was like, wow, he, he kept going, you know? Um, yeah, he, t- he took the multiple arrows in the chest, as it were. But um, The strawberry cough of Gondor. <laughs> Marika uh fucking beats the shit out of uh, sid with a mallet and lets them escape and that is a cool fucking scene uh, um, she's a ride or die yes we we clearly see she's on our team uh she holds the baby and like this is like a really scary moment because like she gets through the door and suddenly key is like i don't have my baby and like key and theo are on the other side of the door and marika's got the child and marika uh, does open the door and like she's with them. She's she's not trying to abscond with the child. Uh, it's like another them. test of faith. Absolutely, and uh, you know, for once it was like worked out. I also noticed that this was the scene where fucking how many sheep was that that walks by as they <laughs> oh, leave yeah. that building? It's like the opening to Hey Arnold, where all the cats and dogs and pigs come out of the apartment, <laughs> just all scurrying about. Yep. Yeah, uh, and there's a lot of stuff going on in the streets this time. There's like a crowd of people chanting Allahu Akbar, uh, another, I guess, religious Im- image there. And there are just so many personal, like up close deaths in the background at, in these scenes in, in Bexhill after they escape the house after giving birth. It's, I don't know, I think it's one of the most, uh, I keep saying this, but it is one of the most brutal parts of the movie. Yeah, you literally see tanks rolling around just shooting at will and crossfire everywhere. Yeah, even, I don't know if they were like telling the truth, but there was a group who comes out of a building saying like, hey, we're civilians, like we're, 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 um, we're citizens. Uh, right. And then they just gun them down anyway. And yeah. I don't know if, it, I think it was the army and not the fishes. Yeah, it's the, it's the army that does that. Yeah, it's just so, so gruesome. Um, but it is at this time that Luke and uh, White Dreadlock uh, guy return and they seize Key and the baby. They take them. Uh, they, like Theo loses Key. In like one fucking minute. <laughs> like, yeah, you could time crazy. it. It's like under a minute. They go outside. They pass all this carnage and then they are like instantly caught. Just giving you again, like the heart, the tension and like the, and this is another long shot. I believe because there's blood on the camera at one point, like, you know, obviously in the shooting fake blood, 
got on, but apparently it was so expensive to reshoot these extremely long scenes. And even though they weren't, it's not a continuous uninterrupted take. It looks like it, but they use, they use very slight CGI and, and other tricks to, I guess, cover up the scenes. But either way, apparently they were, they were like, just leave the, leave the blood on the camera lens. It's just too much to reshoot these scenes. I actually liked it. I I, yeah. I I was thinking about it, and I actually think for the kind of, like like we were talking about, like it almost feels like on the ground reporting or a reality show. Like the camera is, you know, it's like this hacky term you hear in like film class, but the camera is the character, is the, <laughs> but that's is the definitely, third lead, you know? It's definitely more true and than in any other film I've seen because every yeah. 20 minutes the camera just pan somewhere else as Theo in the group just continues on and you just see these other scenes unfolding around you. And God, the sound textures that are going on here, Quaron, like, it, you know, I thought about Gravity, which like, I didn't love that movie, but you know, certainly on a technical level, it's, it's quite, it's quite uh, exceptional. And this movie, the way they use sound to like, you're hearing like the farm animals, you're hearing the gunfire, the bombings, the people screaming, the, um, you know, the people like fleeing with their loved one, people like hold, like there was like a one shot and it's just these quick shots, like a wife cradling her dying husband who's been shot. Um, there's just a lot going on. And I feel like a lot of that is achieved through like sound, which I, I, you know, in a movie about like fucking bombings and shit, it was uh, pretty, pretty essential and well done. So either way they're, they're caught and i there's a scene at which I guess Luke is like pinned down by the, after capturing them, Luke is just like pinned down fighting against the the military who is ultimately winning. Clearly he is still trying to lead, I guess the, the uprising of the fishes and the refugees against the British military. And I think they try to give him a little bit of redemption. He talks about, his clash with Julian and how he's like, he's basically saying the uprising has to happen. It has to be violent, but we also are torn because at this point he's basically risking a baby's life by insisting they hold that the fishes hold on to the baby for their own reasons. I mean, it seems like the baby if left with the fishes would not survive the onslaught of the British military. And Theo uh, only finds uh, key and the baby and like Luke where they're holed up, like pinned down because he hears like the baby crying. Yeah. And this is an interesting thing because we're about to see like the power of just that, that sound, that presence. And again, it was like hearing the baby crying and how it like, they mixed it with the gunfire and stuff going on outside. It's just like, as a, you know, sound wise, I thought it was just so well done. And it's perfect too, because if you think, it would be something you can almost imagine what it would be like to be in that world and be feeling like, am I imagining that? Am I hearing a baby crying? Something you haven't heard probably in like decades. Uh, And it does start to create that. It foreshadows the effect that the sight of the baby is going to have on the combatants in this, in this warfare that we're seeing right now. And then Luke basically says to Theo that his ex-wife Julian thought, things could be done peacefully and like you said he completely disagrees with that he believes in a violent revolution um and you know theo is able to uh escape with key not really i 
if I remember correctly, Goth really threw any like uh, you know violent act of his own. He just kind of like uh, gets he literally out of there. he literally just walks in, um, doesn't really pay attention to anything else is around him. Walks to the baby and then walks out in this very divine sequence where he comes upon uh, Luke and then the people around him who are all who are waiting to touch the baby as they go by and then soldiers and then more soldiers and then fish members and just and then you see soldiers can... also yeah the soldiers will yell cease cease fire like everything stops like yeah, nothing can stops. touch him yeah 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 as they're leaving the building with the baby and also i, I wanted to add that it seems I, if i remember right the only way that theo is able to get the baby from luke is because the british military is literally gunning down uh, Luke at that point. Oh, they're blasting him with a tank. They're blasting him with, with yeah, literally art- artillery. And then as they're leaving, I mean, there's a massive explosion. And I think we're supposed to believe that the tank finally takes out Luke as Theo leaves with Kia right. and the baby. I think it's similar to a lot of the other ways we like leave characters in this movie. Like you, you, it's safe to assume that they, they didn't make it. Yeah. Um, so, and, and, and we can also see the faith, the faith uh, motif come up again where Luke has to basically take it on faith that giving up the baby and giving up his plan is the right thing to do and that he has to kind of just make that decision at that point and come to, that, to, to his peace with that. I think, yeah, and, it's, and it all happens very fast, you know, ultimately. I think what really changes him is seeing the baby and hearing the baby. Like every other character who... Um, Key and her child came in contact with they're just so profoundly changed from Theo to seeing just her pregnant belly the first time to Luke just saying okay uh, I trust you go additionally he 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 um Luke is like stunned when he hears that it's a girl because he remembers that he had a sister mm-hmm. yeah um and maybe like it being a boy was part of his his kind of preconceived plan of what this like revolution was going to be and if and if it was a girl like suddenly like the plan didn't seem so clear anymore so he was just like so stunned that he let them go so either way they get they get out and marishka of course our ride or die is the one who finally leads them to a boat and sends them off her, her dog survives the movie. I think we're led to believe that Jasper's dog is euthanized along with his wife. But this dog seems alive and well, which very good for me. I, as I said, I'm not a fan of violence against or around dogs. I mean, even the scene where they're like going to euthanize Jasper's wife and then the, the dog is just sitting there. It, it kills me. I don't know. I'm, I'm such a fucking baby, honestly, at the end of the day. But the 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 boat go, they row out to in through like a canal and basically out into open ocean and at this point i remember thinking isn't the human project like out in the azores like where they're gonna like row their boat like <laughs> thou- like a thousand miles into the middle of the atlantic ocean but uh, again and, well but but again like it is an act of faith they don't know that this this boat is coming they have no contact with the whoever these saviors are also, we see these like fucking jets fly overhead and completely bomb out the city that we were just in. Yeah. So basically everyone that we connected with back there, maybe even Marishka, like got fucking killed and we're supposed to leave them for dead now. Oh yeah, I took it as everyone is just gone. And they did say, I think Sid said that he had heard on the news that like basically that like he's like, I saw you both on the news. 
that you like something about like you killed cops so um and he also said that all the i think it was him that said it that was like the all the army's coming to bomb like they're bombing this place out like it was like they it was like pre-planned but like clearly none of the like civilians were told to like leave I thought it was, I took it more as because the fishes broke in, it was just kind of a wash, like, let's just get rid of this and leave no evidence behind. But I do think Sid was the one who delivered that message. That definitely heavily reminds me of the Israel-Palestine and the way that, like, the images of the bombed out and already destroyed, basically the ruins of Bexhill, all of the places that the refugees and recent immigrants are living in are already half destroyed and then sending in like the top of the line start state-of-the-art fighter jets to just go in and level the place definitely reminds me of the i don't know the excesses of like the israeli military against palestinians absolutely um theo at this point reveals he has been shot at the same time he tells Key a way to get the child to stop crying by like putting it over her shoulder and tapping on the back. It that is known her. as burping a baby, Dan. <laughs> well, I didn't say that in the movie. Criticizing his dying message. <laughs> they, um... Just uh, tap the baby on the back. Works I don't time. know. I'm not, I'm not around these creatures. <laughs> didn't she put um, the burp key into the back of the animatronic baby in health class? <laughs> See, Dan's already living in the children of men. He hasn't seen a, 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 a live human child in, I don't know, ever, apparently. <laughs> and it is at this time that he, after uh, having a few scenes in the movie where she can't decide what to name the baby, she will name the baby Dylan, which is all she says is also a girl's name, uh, after Theo and Julian's son, which is a beautiful moment. And we uh, pan out. Uh, t- and it looks like Theo is dying or dead. Uh, he sees the boat coming. We see that it is a boat called like Tomorrow. Or- yep. And then at this point, um, some crew members walk over, throw a ladder down, and say, "Come on aboard!" And so Theo and Key climb up. They get you know fed and just <laughs> oh, hands stop, out. Stop! <laughs> stop! That doesn't happen. The movie just ends uh, seemingly with Theo dying and the boat in the distance. Um, but it is a happy ending because we hear sounds of children playing, uh, over the credits, which imply, at least in what I thought it implied that the world once again was populated and that the fertility curse, plague, pandemic, uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, was over. Yeah. Again, it is left open-ended and apparently, younger viewers were more likely to think that the ending was happy and whereas older viewers took it much more pessimistically and did not take the ending to be any kind of reassurance that the act of faith worked out in the end so where do we want to leave off with this movie because it just felt like the perfect i haven't seen it on the you know what's the great pandemic or you know quarantine movie list but this feels like I, I've said this like five times already, but this feels like a future we're like entering. Yeah, it's very reminiscent of what we're in right now or what we've been through in the last five, 10, 15, 20 years. I'm surprised that it hasn't been on any of those lists because just after watching it, um, I just, I don't know, it just seems like the perfect movie to watch right now. And it's Andrew, you're not like a contagion or the strain or something. 
but Andrew, you're not a movie person. Uh, I know you very I'm well. Not, yeah. So what was it like to sit down and watch this, this entire film? I guess there's some background. Um, without exaggeration, I see one of the two movies a year. I uh, don't like going out to see movies. I did take him to see Parasite when I was visiting uh, 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 earlier this year. He did, and I loved it. Um, it just takes a lot for me to see a movie, I guess is the point. Um, I already knew this movie was worth watching, and I've enjoyed it in the past. Um, I don't know. I could, as someone who doesn't like to rewatch movies or like reread books or replay video games or any of that, I would watch it again tonight. It's that good. It's just to say like that it's profound is a lot, but there's just a lot to read um, in every single scene. And it just targets to what's happening now with coronavirus. And then, you know, what was happening even before the virus with Trump and then the, the border. And before that, the war in the Balkans before that um, Israeli Palestine conflict, you could just really read into anything there. Yeah, and like you said, that it is really rich on the rewatches because it has these kind of strong images and themes of, of faith and hope. And uh, there, there's definitely like biblical imagery, even though it's kind of smoothed down and ra- rounded out. It's not a, you know directly a Christ narrative or anything like that, but there are just strong allusions and elements to it that kind of heighten the tension and make it more profound i think for western audiences but like dan was saying about the sound in the background and how much just stuff is going on in each scene that you can you can honestly pause or kind of rewind and go through a lot of the scenes to soak in everything that quaron is kind of throwing at you in each scene and for the economy that he employs in terms of not using a lot of exposition and not wasting a lot of dialogue telling you exactly what you're, look, what you're looking at, it's I don't know, really amazing that he's able to, I guess, get so much in each shot. I think he worked a lot on the set design. A lot of the, what's interesting is that there are a lot of scenes that were on set in London, like on site, and including uh, Fleet Street where the like the London bombing had happened just like a couple months before. And then there's a scene where a bombing happens there again in the movie and um, how crazy that, I mean, it's like if you, what in the U S if like there was a Boston marathon movie that came out like a couple months after the Boston marathon. I mean, uh, it's yeah, not crazy. the one, not the, not the one with Mark Wahlberg that they actually did make like a fictional uh, one. <laughs> yeah, they, they put some, what I'm saying is that they obeyed the too soon rule and didn't just pop that out right after. But no, this movie shows you things that look familiar, but look bad. And it's it's sort of like the tension I had watching it was definitely like how much of this is something I could see coming or how much of it is something that is kind of already happening now, as I've alluded to. So before we go, I was curious if we could unpack like how like a mid-2000s this movie is because <laughs> it's it's extremely... As universal as it is, it really is a great time capsule for the post 9-11, like Iraq war era paranoia, the sort of, um, you know, everybody's an enemy mentality, the sort of, uh, you know, literally like, uh, I don't know, the, the persecution that we see like from like the military figures uh, the way they, uh, you know, enact their own justice. Uh, I, I think this is a movie that does not look kindly on these institutions. No, and 
it's also worth mentioning that it takes place in the UK and the UK also suffered from post 9-11 and mid 2000s syndrome, basically as bad as we did, even though they weren't the ones attacked, they were our biggest allies in Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, we all remember seeing like Tony Blair and George Bush at their endless meetings discussing how they were going to, you know, blow up civilians in the Middle East. And Britain also has a lot of the blueprints for the kind of jingoism and xenophobia that we see in right-wing trends in the U.S. or in like American conservatism. Even though it's not exactly the same, there's still a lot that they have in common with us. And both of us have, you know, I I allude to white supremacy earlier, but nationalism and white supremacy are kind of tied together in the way that their immigration policy is enacted and it informs the brutality of both systems. Obviously, I'd say we're probably a little more brutal than the UK when it comes to immigration, especially these days. The seeds for that, for what we have today, I mean, the excesses of ICE were planted in the mid-2000s by George Bush as he, when he reorganized what was then the Immigration and Nationalization Service into you know, Department of Homeland Security. You kind of even tell with the verbiage there, the change in intent. It was It's changed from how are people coming into this country? You know, obviously, this is the United States. We're all big on this idea that we're a nation of immigrants and we have the Statue of Liberty. Give us, you know, you're tired, you're whatever. And clearly those are all platitudes and it represented, but it's still the renaming of and the reorganization of our immigration system into it being about homeland security first and foremost was definitely a bit of a shift. And I think that 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 kind of informs the brutality we see now. Did you think the fishes were some kind of like anti-fascist thing or were they like, I, I, I found it hard to kind of figure out their ultimate motivations, so I guess. They, they very clearly stated in at one scene um, they will not stop until uh, every single refugee is recognized, um, whatever that means to them. I guess it's like militant open border kind of thing. Yeah, we, something that it's, it's weird to uh, get the idea or to find an analogy for that today because I don't think we really have one. Like, we don't really have radical left-wing violent groups in our day and age. I think it's interesting that they are portrayed as morally ambivalent in the movie, even though their ideas are obviously on their face completely sound. Like, they, their mission is to protect immigrants and refugees. But we're led to believe that they're... I mean, and in, in their effect, they have to kind of, you know they have to break some eggs to make the omelet to borrow a phrase from, you know, from Lenin. I mean, like they do have kind of this Bolshevik energy to them probably because they are resisting just an all powerful, brutal fascist military government. So the group is clearly uh, one of the main antagonists to the film, but do you consider them to be villains? Like it's, is that, is there a switch during the movie that turns to, yeah. I just wrote a note a little while ago that said, were the fishes right at all? And like, <laughs> I mean, politically, like, I'm, I'm pretty sure that in this context, in this movie, I would agree that they were right, that, you know, the borders were way too militarized. Yeah, and I, I think that they turn to violence as a sort of, Politi- like like the way Luke kind of describes it, it's a political reality. Like they are up against a violent force. It is almost naive to suggest that what they're going for could happen without a fight. It's um it's it's a it's sort of like a necessity of the dog eat dog world that they live in. I mean, 
And, you know, something I think about today, because, you know, obviously our boy Bernie Sanders is no longer in the running. And the, I don't know, the further left elements in this country to the extent that they exist, a lot of them are probably, they probably saw Sanders as like someone who was going to use social democracy to keep, to prop up capitalism and allow it to continue for a while. And that's a way a lot of people on the far left see social democracy or like the ideas of Bernie Sanders. And it makes me wonder if like, by the, the extent to which the center and the right wing came down to crush, I mean, like his own party came down just to crush him and kneecap him and consolidate around the one guy who they, who, who they hoped, you know, Joe Biden could beat Bernie. They don't think he can beat Trump, but the objective is not to beat Trump. The objective was clearly to beat Bernie. So I don't know, even in, even in this day and age, we're seeing a moment of reckoning where it's like, if you ask nicely, you're probably not going to get what you want if it's any kind of radical thing, and even if it is a good thing. And after years of asking, eventually you're going to want to take, and you're going to want to take things more you know, into your own hands and be violent. And I think that's the stage that the fishes are at. So even though they're kind of an, they are definitely, like you said, an antagonist in this movie, I can kind of understand how they got to the point that they're at. I mean, especially when you look at how brutal the world they live in is. I can too. Um, I know you mentioned before that Theo is naive in mentioning that they should just bring forward Key and her child, but a part of me still thinks that that could have been uh, a legitimate call. I know that there's the whole um, she's Fuji, she's wanted, and then it kind of ties into the nationalism and you know um, white supremacy sh- angle. But also the whole social media angle, if that had existed back then, I forget what year it was, but I mean you can imagine just like someone uploading something to YouTube and saying, I have the first baby in 20 years. And then like any <laughs> nation who tries to kill them, I don't know. Just going viral on, uh, on GoFundMe with your, with your <laughs> picture of like a live baby. Yeah. I, I am inclined to believe that it, wouldn't go well if they tried to go public with the baby or it wouldn't end well for the baby's parent or anyone around them. I think it also goes contrary to the theme of faith again, because it, it it seems like he's suggesting that as a safe way out of what they clearly have to do, which is bring the baby to a non-aligned group. I mean, the, the political politics don't come out well in this movie. The, the, you know, the far left ambitions of the fishes, which are meted out through violence, much of which ends up as friendly fire, uh, is kind of in a dead heat battle with the far right government of the UK. And the human project to me represents a kind of non-aligned movement. It almost reminds me of like how in the mid 2000s people thought about NGOs or like the, the way people thought about Oxfam or something back then is like this pure good non-ideological when nowadays I think we know a bit more about these organizations and we're like they have an ideology they do have a coalition that they represent it's not this purely good thing but I don't know maybe that's a little what's going on there with the human project and yeah I, I think that's why we're supposed to be led to accept it that we cannot just go public. We can't expect the state to take mercy on Key and her baby. Well, this is a movie that definitely uh, portrays a hog planet. Uh, I think you 
spoke about this before, but this movie, I think more than most that we've watched, talks about literally this is a fucking hog planet. Like you are fucking all alone and the, you know, it's literally like wild animals are just, you know, running around and, uh, and you're basically just uh, as powerless as they are. Sounds uh, like you're describing the streets of New York City. Am I right, Dan? Yes, uh, they were out of matzah at the supermarket, so I, uh, you know, instantly threw a tantrum to the uh, workers. No, I would never do that. <laughs> In a world without matzah, can mankind truly have hope? I was thinking, like, how much of a prick I would have to be to be like, how could you have no matzah on Passover morning? It's like, I would be such an asshole to, like, demand that of these, like, you know, fucking workers who are actually working while the, you know, the rest of us sit on our ass. Um, back to Children of Men, though, it's like, I don't know, the images you see of, like, fucking toilet paper free uh, stores and, like, I don't know. Uh, we've, you know, apocalypse, uh, apocalyptic imagery. Uh, it's not something we're not accustomed to in the last, like, couple months. Yeah. And definitely something that's portrayed in the movie is that it seems like it was a, even though there is a cutoff point, there's like the 18 year mark where women stopped being able to bear children. There is a general sense that it's, there was things slid into the state of decline that they're portraying in children of men. And I think that is accurate to the way that declines happen or societal declines happen in the real world. I mean, we may be living through one of those moments where we're, just sort of sliding, even though the, the coronavirus would rec- rep- represent a serious rupture with the past and rupture in the continuity, especially of American life, which really has not had a shock to the system like this in, I don't know, probably a century. It's not like it was just the one thing that set us over the edge, right? Like the issues that coronavirus and the failure of response in the U.S. are revealing is that there were issues with our government to begin with. There were issues in the way our society was set up to begin with. And we've kind of gradually gotten to this point and we are going to continue to slide, unfortunately. So on that happy note. (laughs) Andrew, any closing thoughts here? Um, You are the guest after all. Um. No, I just wanted to thank you for having me on. Uh, we would love to have you back anytime. Uh, this was, uh, you know, I mean, we can't hang out, so this is nice. You know, we're it's in true. three different points of America. We're quarantined. Uh, it, you know, it's it, it's nice to uh, it's nice to cast right now. Do you um do you want to hear some of the things I wrote down about what I thought this movie was before I watched it after having not seen it in ten years? Absolutely. Please. Okay, so I wrote down uh, everything I think I remember about this movie. Of course, the first one is the famous ping pong all in one shot scene. I feel like that's the one thing that stands out the most. That was CGI. The 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 shot the you're talking about when they spit the ping pong when like uh, Julian oh no no it's just the entire sequence itself but with with the ping pong like wait that wasn't real with the they spit the ping pong back and forth that was edited no they did that with CGI (laughs) what are they gonna stand there and pay everyone to like do nine thousand takes (laughs) and then try to spit a ping pong and like they got a flaming car and like and no that's the thing that's another thing with this movie is there is a lot of CGI it's just not like in your face you know especially not the way like 
early 2000s movies were. I mean, you're forgetting that like a few years earlier than this, like the Star Wars prequels came out in which entire sequences of the movie are like 100% CGI. It's really like, I don't know, the golden age of when you could make an entirely CGI movie. So what did you think this movie was, Andrew? Yeah, I thought it, I mean, I knew the major beats of the movie. Um, One point here, main character has a beard. Didn't remember the name. Uh, does he have a beard? I actually don't know if that's true. No. <laughs> so yeah, that's looking at the cover, I don't think so, unless it's like, you know, some stubble from you okay, know, I have, on the run. I have as a bullet point, police brutality. Um, <laughs> uh, flashing images of the homeless, which uh, isn't necessarily true. <laughs> the refugees. Um, <laughs> they're, they're, they are they're homeless in a way. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, one, even. <laughs> no one being able to have children except for this one girl who is pregnant and then gets killed, which does not happen. Uh, <laughs> not a Hollywood ending. All right. Um, I'll give you that one. Pig balloon that just says pig balloon. Uh, <laughs> uh, You're really getting the most important aspects of the movie written down. I mean, I, this is after not seeing a movie for literally 10 years. Um, and then as the last point was on my OkCupid profile as favorite movie for many years. So after me recounting what I thought that movie was, just keep in mind that I had it listed as my favorite movie. So you were really like dating profile. You were really trying to get dates saying the children of men is your favorite movie. (laughs) (laughs) That's like, like, that's like good light hearted. Like not even, you're not even on the date on OkCupid. I'm not an expert in dating websites, but I'm assuming you're using this to encourage women to go on a date with you. And then what on the date, they're going to ask you about your favorite movie. You're going to start out with some small talk about so you have dystopian movies, movies as well. Yep. Well, I don't. I like movies where, uh, you know, <laughs> where uh, the pig balloons and the police are mean. And then you said, "Pull my finger," and then uh, that's how you met yeah. your ex-wife. Yeah, and then your date shoots you. <laughs> and that's everything I remembered. All right. Well, this is Hog Planet. Uh, follow me at Spuventacular. Follow Sam at Wagstank on Twitter. And uh, follow at Andrew Demola on Instagram. Is that correct? For That's the right. pa- For the videos with the eggs. And, uh, you know, who knows what other content Andrew will be driven uh, to create by his quarantine madness. You can find out by Googling just Andrew DeMola because as I found out, basically all of his social media accounts are just his first and last name. And you can, they all are like the first result. The only other result was this guy in like rural Massachusetts who has the same name as you and is a, an upright base. Yes, he but, actually is related to me. The only other Andrew DeMola in the world. Uh, when I go on interviews, um, I hope that people like the people who are looking at my application and preparing for the interview, search my name and then see that I'm in the band as sort of a way to elevate my status. Yeah, everybody loves the, all the ladies want to date the bass player. Oh, so you're going to take this guy's identity, not just for job, uh, you know, interviews, uh, you know, for for life sort of, uh, you know, enrichment, uh, women, uh, family, uh, children. You will soon see that uh, the children of men is within you, or no, it's the kingdom of God is within you. Just have faith. 
Um, isn't that what they say? The kingdom of God is within you, or was that like, was that like Tolstoy, or was that like a Bible thing? I I know, but I'm not telling you is what my official stance. I think it's a maybe a quote from Kingdom Hearts. I don't actually know. Uh, Andrew, I thought you were just going to talk about Final Fantasy. Um, well, I I did actually, so I delivered. <laughs> staying on brand. There was one moment. All right, that's the end of the show. Um, Again, uh, we'll be back uh, soon. More quarantine content for you. This is Hog Planet.